Well, this morning, let us turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. The title of our message this morning is, What About Israel? What About Israel? And the text is Romans chapter 10, verse 18. We're going to read into chapter 11, verse 10. Now, when we ask what about Israel, we're not talking about the modern state of Israel, but rather the Jewish people as a whole, Israel, and especially in light of the last 2,000 years of redemptive history. Where are they? Why have the majority of them rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what does that say about our gospel and our God? Why are there so few Jewish Christians in the church today? There is one in Palm Vista, and as befits our city, he's a Cuban Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. You may not know this, there's a large Cuban Jewish synagogue on Miami Beach. And uh, David, I think, attended there as a child. There you go. But, But why only one in our church this morning? This is a city of sizable Jewish population. What about the rest of them when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Aren't they God's people? Aren't they the chosen ones of God? See, this is the question that was on the minds and the lips of the first century Christians in the city of Rome to whom Paul wrote this letter, the Romans. What about Israel? Where are they? I don't see them in church. Now, that question seems odd to us, doesn't it? even illogical to our 21st century minds. After all, aren't Judaism and Christianity two different religions? One meets in a synagogue on Saturday, and the other meets in a church on Sunday. So, Al, the reason there aren't more Jewish people here today is they were all in synagogue yesterday if they're religious. Your question doesn't make sense to me, Al. It doesn't make sense to my 21st century mind. Well, it did make a lot of sense to the first century mind and the first century ears. Because you see, in the first century, the very first Christians were all Jewish. The majority of the church was Jewish. That's how the church began, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And it was all Jewish people who were saved initially. See, the gospel message is that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the Jewish law. That Jesus Christ is the one who rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, the early church were all Jewish people that believed in Jesus. And as Jim shared with us the last couple of weeks, they moved their worship from Saturday to Sunday from the synagogue to the church because Sunday's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason they did that is because they understood the gospel message, that the gospel message is that Jesus fulfilled the Jewish law. Jesus is the prophet, the Messiah, the king, the savior that all of Judaism pointed to. By his perfect life, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. By his sacrificial death, his once and for all sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus bore the sins of his people. By his resurrection from the dead, God signaled that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And by his ascension into heaven, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and then God the Father together poured out God the Holy Spirit upon us 
that we might worship God in spirit and in truth, that we might become alive to God, that we might be adopted as his children. The gospel tells us that Jesus is that Messiah whom the prophets of Israel, of whom the prophets of Israel spoke. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law of Moses. Jesus is the new temple where God and man meet. So the question remains, why, why don't the majority of the Jews believe this? Why does Israel not believe this gospel about Jesus Christ? It's a very important question. It's one with gospel implications. Now, particularly for the first century church in Rome, this was a very important question. You must remember that the first century church in Rome began around 33 AD, and here's how it began. Jewish people living in Rome went back to Jerusalem for one of the three great feasts of Judaism, Pentecost, because they were good Jews. But while they were there, something happened to them. They became Christians. Because on that first Pentecost of the churches uh, being born here on earth, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and Peter, a Jew, preached a message to a bunch of Jewish people, and he said, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Lord, and God poured out his Spirit, and if you read Acts 2, 3,000 Jewish people were saved that day and baptized. Well, some of those Jewish people were from Rome, so they got back in their cars and drove back to Rome. And what did they do when they got to Rome? They did what Jim said. They changed church. They changed synagogue to church from Saturday to Sunday. They started meeting as the church. So the church in Rome was born from Jewish people who had been saved, and it was primarily Jewish. But 20-some years later, when this letter was written, that church was vastly different. It was no longer a Jewish majority church. There was no longer a bunch of Jewish men that were leading the church. This church was now decidedly Gentile. As a matter of fact, you had to strain to find where the Jewish believers were. And so the question in their minds was, where is Israel? What about Israel? Where are the Jewish believers? Why have the majority of the Jewish people in this city rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior? What does that say about Jesus and his gospel And what does it say about God? Paul's response to that question and that concern in Rome is the reason he stopped in Romans 8 with the indicatives of the gospel. Beautiful section. He stops at the end of Romans 8 with nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He stops. He interrupts that. He's going to pick it back up in Romans 12 with the implications of the gospel Therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable in Christ. This stuff is easy to preach. This stuff is easy to preach. These last three chapters that we're preaching right now, much more difficult. (laughs) Which is why Jim and Corey have been doing most of the preaching. It's a joke. But it's true. Good job, Jim. Corey, you're going to do a great job. Why did God do that? Why did he interrupt this flow, man? He was on a roll. He was preaching. He had us. He had us. And then he stops for this highly technical three chapters that's asking the question, what about Israel? Because it was important then to this church, and it's important now to us. Because the gospel is at stake, and God's very character is at stake. Is the reason that a bunch of Jewish people have rejected Christ, is the reason because the gospel has failed, is it not true? 
Or is the reason that a bunch of Jewish people have rejected God's son as their savior, does that now mean that God will reject them and be unfaithful to them? And if he's unfaithful to them, them who who were once his people, will he be unfaithful to us too? Will he change his mind? See, what does it say about the gospel that the majority of Jews, uh, Jews rejected Jesus? What does it say about God? Well, let's read and find out. Please, turn in your Bibles to Romans 10, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible. Why? Because the reason this church exists is the the scriptures. I have nothing to say to you. Thank you, Jim. I have nothing to say but what this says. None of us do. So this is the centerpiece. The only way we know God is by this. The only way we know how to worship him is by this. So grab one. There's some on the back table. Look on with someone else if you'd like. And if you don't own one, that's a gift to you. They're hardback. They're good. Romans 10, 18, and we're going to read through verse 10, 11, 10. But before we do that, let me pray. Lord, I am so grateful that I get to preach at Palm Vista in the company of two very good preachers. And I thank you for how you fed my soul the last several weeks with Jim's messages on the church and the gospel and, and, and our, our ministry uh, as believers and making disciples with the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ at great personal sacrifice because of what you've done for us and serving others and not just seeking to be served and living for your glory and not mine. And thank you that I can pray, I can preach this morning and I can pray right now that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, Help us to receive your word, Lord. Break up that hard and stony ground of my heart, Lord. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I pray you plant your word deep within us collectively. Cause your word to bear fruit in us collectively. Open up our ears to hear. Lord God, lead us in your truth. Show us Christ. Show us Christ, Lord God. Father, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart in this place, those that are yours, confesses Christ as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's turn to Romans. Romans chapter 10, verse 18. Romans chapter 10, verse 18. But I ask... Have they, and the they here is Israel, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So what does Israel's rejection of the gospel mean? What does it have to say about Jesus Christ and his gospel and our God? Well, I think that's the question that this text is asking, and that's the question you see on the screens, and that's the main point of the message, the main question that drives the message. What does Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ say about our gospel and our God? Let's start with our gospel, point one. Here's what it says about it, friends. Our gospel is powerful to save all people. Our gospel is powerful to save all people. And that word all isn't every single person, no. It's all kinds of people. Not just Jewish people now, but also Gentile people. Pagans from every people and every nation. But that still begs the question, why are so few Jewish people believers in Jesus Christ and his gospel? Is it because the gospel is deficient? Or perhaps it has even failed? You see, we're 2,000 years removed from a church that had a large Jewish population that were missionaries to the pagans in Rome, a church that was started by and led by and populated by Jewish people. We're 2,000 years away from that, but these people were 20 years away from it. It's like if you look around and there's some people not here that used to be here, you ask, what's going on? Hey, what happened? Well, when it's the Jewish people, the called people of God, the ones who planted the church and started the church, and there's not very many of them left, you're saying, what's up? What's happened? Now, if you look at verse 17, Jim preached this about a month ago. It says the following. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, which is the gospel. Okay. But faith has not come to the Jewish people who have heard the message. Uh, A majority of them are unbelieving. So he asked the question in verse 18. Hey, maybe it's that they never heard. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? But then he immediately answers it. Indeed, they have heard. And he quotes Psalm 19, which is a psalm in the Old Testament designed to describe how God's general revelation the general revelation of God revealed in nature has gone to all the earth so that everyone is accountable to that. Remember at the beginning of Romans, it said everybody knows there is a God because it's revealed in nature. They've just decided to squash that truth, to reject it. So he uses that psalm that's talking about general revelation going to all the earth in a hyperbolic way, which is sort of an over-the-top way, to say that the gospel has gone out, the special revelation of God, of how he saved us in Christ, to all the earth. You see that in verse 18? 
their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, the voice did not literally go out to all the earth and it didn't literally go out to every person in the world. No, that didn't happen. But it did go out to all the nations. It did go out beyond Israel. Because the word did go out and people did hear it and people were saved and a bunch of them aren't Jewish. So it did go out to all the nations. As a matter of fact, church in Rome, look around you. Most of the believers are, are, are converts of, of, of paganism. Not Jews. But it still begs the question. Great, Al. The word went out. You got to hear the word to be saved. Why were these Jews? Why have these Jews who we know heard the word? Because if it went to the ends of the earth, it's certainly gone to the Jews because it began in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So if they heard it, why aren't they saved? Is there a problem with the gospel? Is it weak? Is it deficient? Has it failed? The answer is no. No way. Because here's the deal. Hearing the gospel is necessary for salvation, but it is not sufficient for salvation. Hearing is not enough. What is needed is God's electing grace. We sang about that at the last song we sang in worship. God's electing grace based on God's purpose, his will. And the purpose of God clearly articulated in verses 19 and 20 is that God would use a nation that wasn't a nation. The pagans, a people with no understanding to make his people jealous because they had gone after other gods who were no gods. So God would call nations who are not nations. Now he's going to call them his nations. He predicted that. First through Moses. I will make you jealous, verse 19. Those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then through Isaiah. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God's purpose from these Old Testament passages, was that he would use this people who are not a people. He would call them, and he would actually harden the hearts of his people because his people have been obstinate. They've been disobedient. So Israel should have known, reading their own texts, that God would send forth his message of salvation to all the earth, and he would call the nations to himself, and they should have known that a large part of Israel would not respond. They should have known that. Israel's unbelief did not surprise God. No, it was actually his will. See, this is the crucial element here. God's will in salvation, what we call his electing grace. That is what explains why there aren't a whole lot of Jews in the church in the first century and why there aren't a whole lot of Jews in the church here today. Only a remnant of Israel has believed by God's will. It was God's plan all along. So you ask me, has the gospel failed? You come to me and say the gospel has failed because Jews have not been saved. The very ones who should have known that Jesus fulfilled the law. The very ones best positioned to understand that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The ones who didn't have to be taught the Old Testament but instantly could understand it when they believed in Jesus Christ. You're going to tell me that the vast majority of them aren't saved? Doesn't tell me that the gospel failed? I am telling you that. And Paul is telling you that. The gospel has not failed. It was Israel that failed to believe the gospel. 
Friends, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And let me just say parenthetically here, sometimes we can think that if a majority of people in Miami do not believe the gospel, which is the case, the gospel's weak. We must add something to the gospel. Let's put a dollar bill underneath all the chairs here to get people here. Let's do some razzmatazz. Razzmatazz? Where'd that word come from? Let's do something flashy. Because, you know, the gospel is not enough. It's not enough. Oh, it is enough. Look at the thematic verses of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17 on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But that still begs the question now, what about Israel? Because in this text, it says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, which is exactly what happened, church. The Jew first. All early, the first Christians were all Jewish. And then the Greeks. But what we didn't anticipate, what we didn't see, we didn't see this coming, that there would be so few Jews by 50-something A.D., we got to ask, well, where are they? Where are they? Does Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as God's son, this is the second question that is asked, and actually the main question, mean that God has rejected his people? And if he's rejected his people then, will he reject his people now? Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. By no means. And here's why. Paul uses himself as an example of how this cannot be so. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So what is the, what is the rejection of Jesus Christ by the, by the Israel, Israeli nation, by the Jews in general, the majority of the Jews, mean about God? What does it say about God? Here's what it says about God. Point two. Our God is faithful to preserve his people. Our God is faithful to preserve his people. You see, Paul uses a literary device in verse 1 here that he's used about eight times already in Romans. He asks this rhetorical question, and then he makes his point when he thunders in, by no means. Has God rejected his people? By no means, Paul says. I am a primary example. I am one of his people. As you're seeing it at this point, he's going to clarify that in a moment. I'm an Israelite. But I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am part of that remnant chosen by God. And then look at verse 2. Paul lays out the argument now of how God cannot reject his people by defining God's people. This is key, church. Defining God's people. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people. Now here's the qualifier. Whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. The word knew in foreknew speaks to God's election of us in eternity past. It carries with it the concept of God setting his covenantal love on those whom he elected or foreknew in eternity past, before they were ever born. These are his people. Not just those born physically Jewish, it includes them, but now... Those born of every tribe and every race, all people, that's where that all is defined, who are chosen by God, both Jew and Greek, to be recipients of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And oh, church, here's the point. 
These are the ones. We are the ones. If you've been chosen, if you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you serve him and follow him, and he saved you and your faith is in him, the only reason that's true is because he chose you. We are the ones whom God has not and will not and cannot ever reject, dear church. Now Paul presses his point here in chapter, in verse 2b, reminding us from the Old Testament that it has always been God's will, God's grace that has saved God's people, Old and New Testament. God has always had his remnant people whom he chose, and he chooses to give us that truth through the account of Elijah. Elijah. It's going to pick up that account in 2b. Now, by the way, this is from Elijah, uh, 1 Kings 19, 1 to 18. But 1 Kings 18 and 19 are the story of Elijah confronting this evil king, Ahab, the king of Israel. He was an idolatrous apostate king and the queen Jezebel, who was a prophetess of Baal. It's a great account for you to read with the kids tonight. It's got drama, it's thrilling, it has fear, it has faith, it has war, it has peace, it has the whole nine yards. Read it, it's exciting, very exciting. But Paul uses it here to describe Elijah's condition. See, Elijah had just faced down King Ahab. He had just defeated many, many false prophets, 450 of them alone of of Baal. He had just been used of God to wipe them out in a miraculous way. But Elijah flinched because the queen, Jezebel, said, I'm going to kill you. And since she had been killing prophets very well, very effectively for a long time, he was really afraid. And he, he flinched. And so he cries out to God, what about Israel? And here's his cry. Look, here it is. Check out his cry in verse 3. Lord, this is Elijah crying out, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Have you ever felt like Elijah? (laughs) Alone and fearful? Many of our brothers and sisters on earth right now are facing similar situations as Elijah, literally life and death. We have brothers and sisters right now in Iraq and Syria who are surrounded who may lose their lives today. We're going to be going to places where it's very dangerous to profess Christ, particularly out in the countryside, places like Turkey and Syria. And even our brothers and sisters in Cuba, though they may not be facing death, they certainly face a pressure we know not. And even us here today in South Florida, we can feel alone and a bit fearful. If I share what I really believe about this, will I lose my job? If they see the Bible on my desk, if I read it at the break time in the, in the lunchroom, what, what's going to happen to me? We can feel a little alone, a little isolated, a little fearful, like Elijah. What God wants to say to us here is what he said to Elijah. Look at verse 4b. Verse 4. But, God, but what is God's reply to him? Here it is. I have kept, this is God, I have kept for myself. Notice that is electing grace. God kept for himself. They didn't keep themselves. God kept for himself. 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Here's the point. God has his people. 
God has his 7,000 men and women who have not bowed their knees to the bail of that culture, whether it's Islam, whether it's dialectical materialism, whether it's just materialistic, I want it all right now, pleasure in South Florida. He's got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and those are his people chosen by grace. See, that's the point in verse 5. Paul says, just like God had his people then, point verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant Chosen by grace. That's the key word right there, grace. Chosen by grace. And then he makes this point. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Doug Moo, a commentator on the book of Romans, helps us understand that with this quote. For grace demands that God be perfectly free to bestow his favor on whomever he chooses. If God's election were based on what human beings do, his freedom would be violated and he would no longer be acting in grace. This is the doctrine of unconditional election and it's based on God's will, not our works. And so therefore, if it's based on God's will, how can God reject those whose will it was to elect? God will never reject us for things we have done or not done right because he elected us based on what he did, what Christ did. However, the question still hangs in the minds of many in the church of Rome. But what about Israel? I mean, you still haven't described to me about Israel. Why is it that the majority of them don't believe? And that leads us to verse 7. Verses 7 to 10 form a summary of all that Paul has been saying about Israel's unbelief in chapters 9, 10, and 11 up to this point. And specifically, it focuses in on what Paul has been saying since chapter 9, verse 30, which Jim preached so well, all the way to chapter 11, verse 6. So read it with me. Verse 7. What then? What then? He knows what they're asking. What then? What about Israel? Okay, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. You see that? The elect obtained it. The reason the majority of Israel does not believe is that God did not choose them. The gospel has not failed. It is the power of God for salvation. And God has not been unfaithful to his people. No, his people are the ones that he chose by his electing grace. And he's been very faithful to them. See, Verse 7 here of chapter 11 connects us immediately with verses 30 and 31 of chapter 9. And I I want you to to look at those verses so you can understand what it is that Israel failed to obtain. Romans 9, 30 to 31. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Remember earlier in our passage, God revealed himself to those who weren't seeking after him. That just really bugged Jewish people. I've been seeking you all my life through the law, and you're going to reveal yourself to these pagans that were sacrificing to idols 10 minutes ago? I've been in this thing my whole life. My family's been in this thing for 1,500 years. Yeah, but the thing was pointing to Christ, and you're rejecting him. It was difficult. I mean, I'm not saying this is an easy doctrine to embrace, but it, it does make sense of why. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel sought righteousness by works, by the law, and they rejected the righteousness of God that he revealed in Christ Jesus by faith alone. 
They rejected this gospel because God hardened the hearts of the majority of them. As it says in verse 8, I look now back at Romans eleven eight. He's just said, but the rest were hardened as it is written, God. So he understands what he's saying. They were hardened and God did the hardening. You cannot escape that here in this text. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, and David here being quoted from Psalm 69, which was seen as somewhat of a messianic psalm, by the way. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Actually, he's praying this against the enemies of Messiah. But suddenly Israel, the majority of Israel that hasn't been elected, have become enemies of Messiah. So it applies to them. See, in in these verses... Paul explains using the Old Testament, and actually he uses all three divisions of the Old Testament because the first quote is kind of a conflagration of Deuteronomy and Isaiah, and the last one is is Psalms. He uses something from the law, the Deuteronomy, something from the prophets, Isaiah, and something from the writings, Psalms. And he makes his point. It's God that hardened them. So we'll see what, what Moses was trying to say to Israel, and that one that says he gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this day. He's saying... Israel didn't see all the good things God did for them. They, he, they forgot the good things that God did for them, and they've forgotten it. They actually, they haven't seen or understood the best thing he's done for them. Moses pointed to Christ. Christ is the greater Moses. David pointed to Christ. Christ is the greater David and king. And they don't see it. And they don't see it. Now here's a careful point that we've got to embrace here. God chooses some by grace. Those are called the elect. And God hardens others. And those are called the reprobate. But the way he does those are not equal. Very important. Or you will become a hyper-Calvinist. That is not biblical. He does not he does not harden the reprobate in the same way that he chooses the elect. Let me explain. I hear what you're saying. Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. Okay, I got it. Because this flies in the face of our modern sensibilities that we're the masters of our fate, doesn't it? We don't like to hear this. As a matter of fact, the last time I preached, I think, or two times before that, I dealt with one of these questions that Paul asked in chapter 9, verse 14. No time to go there. But he says, hey, is God unfair? Because he chose to give mercy to some and didn't to others. And then he says, may it never be, may Geneta. And he made his point. Not going to make that point again, but you can go listen to that sermon again. But here's the point here. God actively comes to those who are in a stupor. I, I, I pray that's you if that... It, I pray God do that to you this morning. If you're here, thank you for being here. I don't mean to be rude or pressure you, but if you're here and you know you're not a believer, I pray God would do this. He would actively come and take the stupor of your mind and wake it up and take the deafness of your ears and give it hearing. I was watching this thing on YouTube the other day of these women, these people that get these implants, these cochlear implants, 
and it makes me just cry. Coakley, that was the wrong word, whatever it is. And, and, and they say, okay, it's on. And the people just start crying because it's the first time in their life they can hear. They're just weeping. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, that's, and, and the nurse is like, oh, that's okay, honey. And I'm sure she's used to it by now. And, you know, you just have to take like 10 minutes to just let them weep because they can hear. Well, that's what God does in electing people is he takes our deafness and he removes it. He, he takes our blind eyes and suddenly he opens them. Oh, it's an auditorium. And he's active in that. That's his electing grace. That's his mercy to people who don't deserve it. But in the hardening, he does not act actively here. Because if he did, then you would be saying that God's the author of evil and sin. You cannot say that God hardens people's hearts by making them do things that are evil or wrong. He doesn't. It's different. I don't have time to go into this fully, but R.C. Sproul has written a great book called Chosen by God, and he talks about this there in the section on double predestination, and it's very, very good. He tears down the caricature of Reformed theology in this area, the straw man that isn't true that people build, and he gives the truth of what the Bible teaches. He teaches it right here. Israel was born into stupor and blindness and deafness. What God does in hardening is he does not choose to come actively and remove it from them. He leaves them in that state. Now you may ask, and a whole lot of people may ask, hey, that's not fair. I get you. I get you. Let me remind you of this diagram that I showed you a couple of weeks ago. God is just. You've got one circle that's justice. You've got the other circle that's non-justice. And in the non-justice circle, you have two options, mercy or injustice. What happens here in electing grace is that some get mercy. If we all got justice, we would all be condemned because we have rebelled against God. That's how we're born. We're born with a stupor. We're born deaf. We're born blind. We're born dead to God. That's the consequence of Adam's sin. God chooses to give mercy to some. To others, he gives justice. He gives no one injustice. I know that's hard. I know that's hard, but it's true. Remember what Moo said. If God is not free to be gracious or merciful to whom he wills, then it's no longer grace. It's earned. It's the same thing Sproul says in this book. God has to be free to be merciful to whom he will. In fact, that's the quote that is used in Romans 9 to answer this question, is God unfair? And it's the quote from Exodus when God revealed himself to Moses that way. Moses said, show me your glory, and God showed him his mercy. Here's the good news, church. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. God will never reject those whom he's elected by grace. And if you're here, if you're understanding this, you're pursuing God, you're saved, you love God, it's only because of his electing grace. And if you're not here and you don't believe, you, you don't believe you're here but you don't believe, then dear friends, I'm praying. This is my prayer. Listen, you can't believe without hearing. That's what Romans uh, 10, 17 says. They've got to hear. But that's not enough. But I'm preaching it to you. God's, God's here, and I'm praying that as you hear this truth, as you hear what Jesus did for you, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would come and do that other part, which is unstop your ears and unblind your eyes and give your heart understanding. And if you're a child of one of the members here and you've been here for years and you don't know, I pray it would happen now. You can't figure it out. You can't be good enough. No, no, no. It's not about being good enough. It's about God's 
electing grace. That's my appeal. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would bring conviction to every heart here. That you are good and faithful to your people and that you would preserve your people, those whom you've elected by grace. That there would be no doubts about that in anybody's heart. Lord, that the ones that you foreknew, the ones that you said, I'm putting my covenantal love on them before we were ever born, before we ever did anything. And it was not based on anything, any foreknowledge you had about what we would or would not do. No way. It was totally based on what you have done in Christ, who the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. It's based on your will, the good pleasure of your will, and your glory, the glory of your grace. And I pray that we would be convicted this morning. You will never reject us, no matter how alone we feel. Some of us feel pretty alone these days. How bleak it looks. We look around Israel, metaphorically speaking, and it's kind of bleak. But, oh God, let us hear, Al, I've got my people. I have my remnant. I have those whom I've foreknown. I've put my covenant love on. Trust me, I will never forsake you or them. In Jesus' name, amen.